Well, I am delighted to be a guest preacher here today, and we uh, had a wonderful time in the first service. I'm looking forward to a full day of conversation with y'all this afternoon. And I wanted to begin with a reading from the Gospels that has meant a whole lot to us in our work in Philadelphia and to me in my life. I'll invite you as you're able to, out of respect for the Gospel, to stand and we will read from the Gospel of Luke chapter 7 verses 18 through 22. The disciples of John the Baptist reported all of these things to him. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? So when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? Jesus had just cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. And so he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. This is a reading from the Gospel of Luke. Thanks be to God. God. You can be seated. So this is, uh, the reason I like this one is because it's, it's kind of intriguing. If, uh, if you know who John the Baptist is, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. So they grew up together. And in fact, uh, John's the one who was preparing the way for Jesus, as the gospel says. And it, it, it says that uh, John even baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. Uh, so you would think he's pretty convinced that G of who Jesus is. But at this point, as we read in the scripture, John is in prison. Just like a lot of prophets do, he got in trouble for speaking truth to power, for living out the good news of Jesus. Uh, John was kind of a wild guy. He ate locusts and wore camel skin. Pretty sure he had dreadlocks, but wouldn't bet my salvation on He was a wild desert prophet. And he gets in trouble. He eventually gets executed. He's beheaded. And so at this point, I'm sort of wondering if John isn't kind of going, all right, when's the revolution happening, right? When, when's the world going to change? And, and so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are, are, is there somebody else coming or are you, are you the one we've all been waiting for? And I love Jesus' answer because it's a pretty simple question. Are you the one? Jesus could go, yes. In fact, I am, you know, uh, but very characteristic of Jesus is that he doesn't go around flaunting who he is. You know, he doesn't walk up to people going, hi, I'm the Messiah in your name, you know, like, but he invites everybody to follow him and discover who he is. And that's exactly how he answers the question. He says, go back and tell John what you've seen and heard that the good news is preached to the poor, that people are being liberated and healed and raised from the dead. Like you, it's kind of an invitation to read the trail of crumbs behind Jesus and let the evidence speak for itself because anybody could say they were the Messiah, but not everyone had something to show for it. And I love that answer, but it also raises a deeper question for those of us who call ourselves Christians. Is, 
you know, do we have anything that follows us with which we can say with any credibility if folks say, are you a Christian? Can we say, tell us what you've seen and heard? Because Jesus said that, that we will do the same things that Jesus is doing. In fact, Christian means Christ-like, that we are to live with the same love that lived in Jesus. And yet I think we have to kind of begin by saying that often our lives had had very little of that same evidence of good news. And I heard one uh, theologian that said it really well. He said, from Jesus we can see that the gospel spreads best not by force, but by fascination, by fascination. And yet, for much of the world, our Christianity has become less and less fascinating. One of my friends says, we've given the atheists less and less to disbelieve in. There's not always much substance to our Christianity. And, um, and, and very stunning was a survey done just a few years ago by the Barna Research Group. So these are polists and researchers. And they went to every state in the United States. And they asked young non-Christians, what do you think of when you hear the word Christian, what comes to mind? The number one answer of young non-Christians when they hear the word Christian is they think anti-gay, anti-homosexual. Number two, the second biggest answer was judgmental. Number three was hypocritical. I'll stop there because the list doesn't get much better. You know, and as you read this list, I mean, it broke my heart that folks said, you know, we're irrelevant, we're prudish. We're, uh, uh, and what also stunned me was what did not register on the poll. What people didn't say was the very central characteristic that Jesus said that we would be known by, which is, Love. I'm glad you knew that. That could have been awkward. You know, love. They will know that you're a Christian by your love. People did not uh, first think of the fruits of the Spirit. Things like gentleness, kindness, goodness. And, and so I, I you know, I, I resonate with Gandhi when he was asked about Christianity. You know, he said, oh, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. But I think what so many of us want is a, a Christianity that looks like Jesus again. And as you, you know, you look at the church, I, um, I grew up in Tennessee in the Bible Belt. I fell in love with Jesus. I grew up Methodist. You know, my grandmother said, you may not have to be Methodist to get to heaven, but why take a chance? You know, <laughs> like, uh, and so we, you know, we, we were Methodist. But then, you know, we, I, the deeper I fell in lo love with Jesus, the more I saw that the church was very good at making believers, but not as, as good at forming disciples. And that in the end, Christianity is not just taught, it's caught. In Jesus, we don't just see a presentation of ideas, but we see an invitation to join a movement that is carrying God's love into a broken world. So I think doctrines are important things, you know. But doctrinal statements, they don't exactly woo you in to the kingdom, right? You don't read a doctrinal statement and be like, whoa, sign me up. How exciting, you know? So I, I love that in Jesus, 
the words become flesh, right? As one of my neighbors says, she speaks Spanish as her first language, and she says, uh, what happens is in Jesus it is God becomes incarnate, and when you order your burrito con carne, it means with meat. And so in Jesus, God puts meat on, puts flesh on love, and shows us what God is like, and that's what we're to follow. But as I started reading the Gospels, for me, I mean, I became a believer a long time before I knew what it mean, meant to be a disciple. You know, I worshiped Jesus, but I wasn't really following him. I mean, I was a good kid. I made straight A's. I went to Sunday school every Sunday. It was, uh, I, uh, I, I was prom king. Um, it was a small town in Tennessee, but you know, I, I, and, and then I read Jesus saying uh, that we shouldn't strive to be the greatest, but strive to be the least. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. I heard a preacher say if we find ourselves climbing the ladder of upward mobility and status in this world, we better be careful or else on our way up, we might pass Jesus on his way down. Because the whole story of Jesus is about a God who leaves all the comfort of heaven to, to, to live into the struggle here on earth, to live near to the poor. Uh, Jesus, who could come in any way he wanted to, but came as a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew in a town where nobody else good could come, they said, who was born a refugee in the middle of a genocide, who died executed on a cross, killed with someone on his left, on his right, a, humiliated, tortured. That's the Jesus we follow. So I, I've been trying the last 25 years or so to figure out what it looks like to follow that Jesus. And I've had a lot of great teachers along the way, but one of my first was uh, Mother Teresa, who, you know, you read about all the saints, and a lot of them are, they've all passed on. You know, like I, I learned in Sunday school about John Wesley, who incidentally I think more uh, Methodists need to learn about, you know, because he was such a wild guy, right? He said, if I die with more than 10 pounds, you know, $10, may every person call me a liar and a thief because I betrayed the gospel. He said, if I get money in my hands, I get rid of it as quick as I can before it corrupts my heart. Come on, John Wesley, right? So, so I, I learned about those folks, but then I, they were all dead. So many of the saints, you know, and, and, and then... There was Mother Teresa who was still alive when I was in college. And so we said, now here's someone who's still alive and seems to be taking the words of Jesus really seriously. When you think of what you see and hear from her life, it's fascinating. The world would love. So when we're 20 years old, you know, no one's convinced us anything's impossible. So we just wrote her a letter. You know, dear Mother Teresa, we don't know if you give internships, but we're free this summer. You know, and... Uh, uh, <laughs> sent that letter off and never heard back and with the summer kind of creeping on we thought we better get we better get to work so we just called some nuns on the phone and started asking how can we get a hold of mother Teresa right most of them thought we were prank callers but this one nun bless her heart like gave us a phone number and we called India and uh, mother Teresa picked up the phone which was cool I mean, I was kind of expecting a polite little receptionist or something, you know, missionaries of charity, but we just heard, hello! And I was, I was like, well, listen, I'm calling from the United States. We're trying to get a hold of some of the nuns that work with Mother Teresa. We're trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. And she said, well, this is Mother Teresa. 
I'm like, and I'm the Pope, you know, it was awesome. So I, I said, well, we want to come work with you in India. And she said, well, come on. She didn't have quite the Southern, you know, twang, but you know, she said, come on. And I said, well, great. Where are we going to sleep? Thinking like, Mother Teresa, you got a futon? You know, like, like where are we going to sleep? And she said, oh, God takes care of the lilies and the sparrows. God will take care of you. You just find your way here to India. I'm like, awesome. I hope that works with my mom when I tell her that, you know, we're, where are you going to sleep, son? Well, God takes care of the lilies and spirit. But we went, and we lived this incredible adventure. Every morning, I worked in the orphanages that Mother Teresa started. I worked every afternoon in the home for the dying, where we would bring people off the streets who were both destitute, alone, and dying, and we would hold their hands as they died every day. It was holy, holy work. There's so much I learned. But one of the most important things I think I learned is, is about our prayer life. Because it was such grueling, emotionally taxing work, we, we prayed deeply. Every morning we got up at 5 o'clock and started the day in prayer. Every evening we ended the day at the foot of the cross, adoring and loving Jesus. And so... Um, I noticed, though, that the prayers we prayed, you know, when I grew up in youth group, when it came time for prayer, we gave off all of our prayer requests, you know, and said, well, my aunt, she's sick, and my, my, my teacher's, uh, you know, struggling with financially, whatever, you know. And, and I think that's a part of prayer, making our requests to God, but I think there's a much deeper part of prayer I learned in India, which is not just about getting God to do what we want God to do, but it's about getting us to do what God wants us to do and to become who God wants us to become. Because every morning I learned in India, we, the prayers we prayed, here's one of them, is that, dear Jesus, may every person I come in contact with feel your presence in my soul, Jesus. May I leave off your fragrance everywhere I go, Jesus. We were praying that we would smell like Jesus, right? That we would uh, love like Jesus. And uh, then after our, our morning prayers, we would have communion, which I have to confess, I thought was a little redundant that we did it every single morning, you know, and I'm, I'm just going to say sometimes growing up, Pastor Jay, we would leave before the communion to beat traffic. I'm not proud of that. Just saying, you know, <laughs> like, but they were like, no, this is the, this is, this is the culmination of everything. And, we, and I asked one of the nuns, I said, why do we take communion every morning? And she said, well, you've heard the saying, we are what we eat. She goes, that's pretty much it. She said, we're praying that we would be transformed by communion, that we would become the body of Christ in the world. That's not just a theological idea. It's a physical reality that we are the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. That Paul says, the life I live, I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. We are to carry God's love in the world. And so that was the, the, the way that we prayed and what we saw lived out. And we, you know, I came back to the U.S. where we started our little community in Philadelphia, uh, inspired by that. Mother Teresa had a great benediction and kind of sending off she would say find your own Calcutta you don't have to go into India to find Calcutta pray that God would give you the eyes to see the pain where you are the eyes to see injustice where you are to 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 be a part of loving people back to life right where you are so we came back to Philly we started our community and above our door We've got a, one of the beautiful quotes of Mother Teresa where she said, 
What's important is not how much we do, but how much love we put into doing it. We're not called to do great things, but small things with great love. And we, you know, started welcoming folks that were homeless into our home. We started helping kids with homework and uh, planting community gardens and had folks in recovery from heroin. And we're all, you know, living this out. And, and we still do so much of those small things with great love. But I also learned that there's another part of what it looks like to be the people of Jesus in the world today that is about interrupting the patterns of injustice, right? As Martin Luther King said, uh, we're all called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch on the road to Jericho. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, maybe we need to rethink the whole road to Jericho, right? We got to do something about why people keep ending up in the, in the ditch. And so that's the work of justice, you know, the work of compassion often leads us to justice and, and in Philadelphia we began to see that our city started passing some really unjust laws that specifically targeted our homeless brothers and sisters uh, these laws have been passed all over uh, the country. In fact, the former mayor here in Montgomery said some of those laws passed here that we, we saw these laws in Philadelphia make it illegal to sleep in public places. Laws that made it illegal to ask for change on the streets. One of the final laws in Philadelphia was a feeding ordinance that made it illegal to share food with homeless folks downtown. And so we, uh, we thought, you know, it's our job to challenge the injustices of our world. St. Augustine said an unjust law is no law at all, right? Our job is to uphold the law of love of our neighbors. So we wanted to do things humbly, but we wanted to challenge those laws. So we started some public picnics in Philly where we would bring our guitars and our drums and we'd worship Jesus and then we'd serve communion which was subtle and illegal, you know? And so we, you know, it's kind of pushing the envelope. Most, most of the police were around though. And they're like, I'm not gonna arrest them during communion. In fact, I think I might need to take communion, you know? And then uh, after the breaking of the bread, we brought some pizzas in and kept the party going, you know? And then we uh, slept out in the park uh, uh, to challenge the laws. And so one night, while we were all there at about midnight, the police were ordered to arrest all of us. And they came in, put us in handcuffs, and took us to jail. That was a first for me. My mom was not happy, you know. And, uh, uh, but I'll, I'll never forget, you know, it's, it's funny to me when like, I meet Christians that have these incredible conversion stories, which I love. You know, but so often they'll say things like, oh, my life was such a mess. You know, I, I was into all kinds of stuff. I went to jail, and then I met Jesus, and that, everything came together. I'm like... God bless you if that's your story. But for me, I pretty much had my life together and met Jesus, and he messed me up. You know, and I, I didn't go to jail before I was a Christian, but I've gone about a dozen times since. You know, and so like that, I learned, though, that as, as we were drugged before the courts, that we were given an opportunity to testify, right? And so I had a shirt on that said, Jesus was homeless. And one of the first things the judge does, he goes, come here. Jesus was homeless. I didn't know that. And I said, yeah, your honor, in the gospels, Jesus says that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And the judge goes, 
that's pretty good. You guys might stand a chance. And uh, we did. You know, dozens of us were on trial, and the district attorney was not uh, happy. She wanted us to go to jail and pay thousands of dollars worth of fines. This was a kicker. And she wanted us to have hours and hours of mandatory court-sanctioned community service. <laughs> no, not that. You know, so anyway, we, we argue our case. And in the middle of our trial, the judge says this. He says, listen. What's in question isn't whether or not these people broke the law. It's very clear to me that they broke the law. What's in question are the laws that we're passing in this city. And he said if it weren't for people who broke the bad laws, we wouldn't have the freedom that we have in this country. And he said, let me remind you that this is what this country's built on from the Boston Tea Party to the Civil Rights Movement. Have you heard of the Underground Railroad? He said, uh, we would still have slavery. He said, uh, uh, these guys are not criminals. They're freedom fighters. I find them all not guilty on every charge. Dropped all our charges that day. It was a good day. And then he goes, and how can I get one of those shirts? So I, <laughs> I sent him a shirt. You know, and I, I was reminded, though, through all of that, that there is a part of our faith and what it means to be the people of God that is about comforting those who are hurting in the world. There is also a part of our faith that is about disrupting the status quo that continues to allow people to be hurt. Right when Dr. King first went to jail, he said, I was a little troubled at first, but then I looked at history and saw what good company I have behind bars. We think of John the Baptist. We think of our Savior. We think of so many of the, the saints that went to jail uh, for their faith and their love for the poor. And Dr. King, at one point, someone called him maladjusted, and they meant it as an insult, but he took it as a compliment. And he said, I may very well be maladjusted because we live in a world that has become way too adjusted to injustice. We live in a world that has become way too adjusted to racism and segregation. We live in a world that has become way too adjusted to the inequity between the super rich and super poor. We need some holy maladjusted people right now, right? Jacques Ellul, the great French thinker, said, I don't know where we get the notion that Christians are just meant to be normal. He said, Christians! throughout history have been holy troublemakers, creators of divine mischief, folks who refuse to accept the world as it is and insist on building the world that God dreams of. And when we look at Jesus, we see one who disturbed the status quo, right? I mean, saying the last are first and the first are last, telling the religious elite that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. <laughs> we wonder what gets you in trouble, saying things like that, right? Like Jesus, the one who was continually including the excluded and challenging the self-righteous and the chosen. He, this Jesus that I think we all every day must grasp what, what does it mean to follow that Jesus today, are we disciples or are we simply believers, right? Because my, my friend Tony Campolo, he says, it's easy just to come to the altar singing just as I am and leave just as we were and keep living just like we always have. But are our lives being transformed by this one who wants to live in us, who wants to love the world through us? Is it changing the way that we think about how we welcome immigrants? And refugees, because Jesus said, when I was a stranger, 
you welcome me. So I think it's a, an amazing moment to be alive right now in our country, right? If light shines in darkness, what an amazing chance it is to shine. Or as my friend Stanley Hauerwas says, he says, the light shining in darkness is kind of like how we need to be air fresheners in the bathroom, right? That we need to leave off the smell of love in a world where hatred and racism are so alive. One of my poignant memories I'll, I'll leave with you as I was uh, living in Philadelphia uh, around the time of September 11th when, um, you know, being right between New York and D.C., we knew people that were directly impacted by the attacks of 9-11, lost their immediate loved ones, and, and everybody started responding, some out of compassion, some out of fear and anger. One of the things that happened in Philadelphia is someone dropped a banner from our city building, from City Hall, that said, let's kill them all and let God sort them out. So there were those things. But there was also a group of loved ones uh, who had lost their moms and dads, husbands and wives in 9-11. And they became known as families for peaceful tomorrows because what they saw was that the response of the war uh, wasn't going to heal the wounds of violence. In fact, their prayer became, please don't kill in our name. And they went to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I got a call saying, would you consider going on a delegation to Iraq? I said, geez, I'm going to need to pray about this, you know, and I, I ended up going with dozens of other Christians, many of them clergy pastors and uh, doctors and nurses, and we were in Baghdad during the bombing. I didn't exactly know how all the timeline was going to unfold, but we ended up living in Baghdad when 900 bombs a day were falling on Baghdad as a response to 9-11. We saw the most horrific things I've ever seen in my life. But what I also saw was how amazing grace is. In the midst of all of the, the, the violence and the fear, I went to a worship service with Iraqi Christians in Baghdad in the middle of the war. Hundreds and hundreds of Christians gathered in a little church about this size, you know, and they were flowing into the streets because they couldn't all get in. They're holding candles. And then the bishops from all the different denominations stood up and they read a statement that they had collaboratively written and it was addressed to Muslim people. And they said, we want you to know that we love you. We want you to know as Christians, we are convinced that you are made from the same dirt that we are made from, that God breathed life into, that you are made in the image of God just as much as we are, that we come from the same dysfunctional family of Abraham and Sarah, and we want you to know we love you today, and we're praying for an end to the violence. And then one of the bishops pointed to the cross, and he said, this cross doesn't make any sense to the wisdom of this world, but it teaches us the narrow way that leads to life. It teaches us how we can live in a violent world without becoming violent ourselves. This love that even says as he's being executed, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's the one we follow and the whole place busted out in amazing grace in Arabic. I'm sitting in Baghdad listening to our brothers and sisters sing Amazing Grace in Arabic.
my tears are flowing down my face and I'm moved and I can get a little charismatic in case you don't notice you know and I ended up coming forward and I'm talking to one of the bishops and I said this is one of the most power, powerful services I've ever been in I feel the Holy Spirit in here and then I said something a little ignorant because I just talking fast you know and I said I had no idea there's so many Christians in Baghdad and the bishop stopped me and he was very nice he goes yes this is where it started <laughs> and then, then y'all, he pointed out the door and he said, that's the Tigris River and the Euphrates. Have you heard of them, brother? <laughs> he said, the Garden of Eden is right down the street a little bit. And he said, you didn't invent Christianity in America. You just domesticated it. And he said, you go back and you tell the church in America that we are praying for them. We're praying for them to remember who they are, to remember that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword, to remember Jesus, the one who loved his enemies so much he died for them. Tell them we're praying for them. So those words, you know, they still echo in my soul. And I think uh, of our brother, Dr. King, as he said 50 years ago, these are extreme times. He said this 50 years. These are extreme times. And the question is not whether or not we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hatred or extremists for love? And our Savior is an extremist for love. I pray that we would have the courage to follow the one who said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Love your answer. I am convinced that one of the reasons we are losing young people in the church is not because we've made the gospel too hard, but because we've made it too easy. We've reduced the radical revolutionary love of Jesus into a doctrinal statement. So my hope is that we would feel the Holy Spirit warm our hearts with that strange, that strange fire that John Wesley felt, that we would feel the movement of God change us so that we live differently in the world, that we do not conform to the patterns of injustice and racism and fear, but that we live with the grounded hope that love is more powerful than hatred, that life is more powerful than death. And don't you hope that a generation from now, when people hear the word Christian 50 years from now, don't you hope that they won't say anti-gay, judgmental, hypocritical, but that they will say love, that they will say justice, compassion, courage. Oh, the Christians aren't those the ones who welcome the immigrants and refugees, who care for the folks on the street, who love their enemies. Those are the people of Jesus. May it be so. Let me pray for us. Oh God, Forgive us for turning our faith into a simple statement of beliefs.
we do believe that you died and rose again to heal the sins of the world. We also know that, as your scripture says, we can have faith to move mountains and speak in the tongues of men and of angels and do all sorts of miracles and prophecies. But if we don't have love, it's nothing. So make us people who love like you love, who love as big as you love. I thank you for this community, this community over a hundred years old. I pray that you would breathe fresh life into them and that they would become a force for love and compassion and justice in Montgomery. We pray that your light would shine in the darkness and that we would leave off the fragrance of you, Jesus, everywhere we go. Amen.